Do you believe in Christ so deeply that you'd give up everything for Him? You know, statistics tell us that 100 million Christians daily face the reality of violence, oppression, imprisonment, and martyrdom all over the world. And now we're seeing the apparent signs that persecution is coming for Christians in America as well. So, what should our perspective be? And how can we prepare to face persecution right here at home? Well, that's the topic up for discussion on The Truth Forum with David Parsons. Our guest today is renowned Bible teacher and best-selling author, Dr. John MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur is the pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, also president of the Master's College and Seminary, and featured teacher with the Grace to You Media Ministry. Now let's join Truth Remains founder and teacher David Parsons, along with Dr. MacArthur, as we consider persecution and the church in America. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Truth Forum. I'm Dave Parsons and I'm grateful that you've joined us. The topic today is persecution in the church in America. And Truth Remains really exists to provide hope for believers in really daunting, dark times that we face. And one of those dark times that we face is persecution in the church. And so I'm so thankful to have as my guest today, Dr. John MacArthur. And Dr. MacArthur is a friend who has had a profound impact on my life spiritually, in particular, my love for Jesus Christ and understanding my Savior in deep and meaningful ways. Uh, His ministry has also impacted uh, my wife and my sons and my entire family. So we're just so grateful for his faithfulness to the truth. John, before we get started, I want to say a personal word of thanks. On behalf of our Truth Remains supporters, thank you for being with us. I know you're going to help us see more clearly through the lens of God's Word. Given all that we observe in the ever-eroding landscape of American society, it seems clear that persecution for true believers right here in the United States is upon us. Just a few months ago, city officials in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, issued a warning to Christian pastors within that community, telling them bluntly that if they refuse to marry homosexuals, they will face jail time and fines. And that's just one example of what we're seeing all over the country. Are you surprised that authentic biblical Christianity is finding increasing opposition in America? Well, thank you, David, for the ministry of Truth Remains. What a powerful testimony to the glory and enduring reality of God's holy word. In response to the persecution of authentic biblical Christianity, uh, am I surprised? Of course not. Of course not. I go back to what our Lord said on Thursday night of Passion Week as he gathered in the upper room to have the Passover with his disciples. And he said to them this, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. At the very outset of his ministry, he would say he would say things like, the student is not above the teacher, the servant is not above the master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And then in that same conversation on Thursday night of Passion Week, he said, the day is going to come when they actually think that they are serving God by arresting you and imprisoning you. He went on to say, in this world, you will have 
tribulation. Now the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And when he wrote that, he was a prisoner. He was a prisoner in Rome about to have his head chopped off. Am I surprised by persecution? Of course not. If they hated Christ, they'll hate those who are Christ's. Paul went so far as to say, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. In other words, when, when they whip me and they beat me and they stone me, it isn't really me. It's Christ they resent. It's Christ they hate. The truth is, in America, we've had a reprieve for a long time from persecution. I think the reprieve is over. And I expect escalating hostility to come against Christians. It's just so strange, isn't it, though, that it comes because of what some perverted people want to do sexually. That has literally become the defining reality in the persecution of Christians. Amazing strategy by the enemy of our souls. Biblical Christianity, however, flourishes under persecution. The church grows under persecution. Hypocrites disappear under persecution, and the purity of the church is gained, and I think that the church becomes more effective. So let's look and see what God is going to do in times of persecution. Wow, thank you for that reminder from the Lord himself. Let me ask you this. Christians have been persecuted since the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Paul was persecuted. All of the apostles either died in exile or were martyred. William Tyndale, the translator of the English Bible, was exiled for 12 years before being betrayed and martyred. Countless believers throughout history have suffered or died on account of the gospel. Our legacy as Christians is that of a bloody, brutal battle for the truth. And yet, as you've already said, in American history, we have lived relatively free from persecution. How will persecution affect the church in the U.S.? Well, as to how persecution will affect the church in the United States, I mean, obviously, there's the personal thing. Um, you're going to be hated by your father, your sister, your brother, your mother, um, your family, your friends. I mean, Jesus said all of that. If, you, if you're not willing to step into that kind of hatred and animosity in the intensity of your own family, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Uh, there will be animosity, just personal animosity. There'll be resentment from people around you. You know, it may affect you in the school you go to. The professors may be mocking you and slandering you. It may affect your job. It may even cause you to be an alien in, in a working environment, even if you're a good and faithful worker. It could cause you to lose your job. Um, all of those things could be reality. I don't know, maybe down the road, it's going to become such a crime to be a Christian that Believers might end up in jail. That wouldn't be anything surprising. But I think on the big picture, if, if we kind of pull back a little bit and look at the macro picture, what I see coming is that the government is going to legislate against Christian convictions. And if the Supreme Court decides that um, it's a violation of the law to denounce gay marriage, and that's a crime, then there's going to be some punishment attached to that. So I think... 
what's going to happen is they may not want to put all the Christians in jail, but they could take away their charitable tax deduction when they give money to the church. The church could lose its tax-exempt status. All of a sudden, churches and Christian institutions and ministries could could face massive property tax. Donors to these ministries would no longer get a tax deduction for giving to them. In other words, they can use taxation as a tool. They can also change zoning laws and wipe out the possibility of a Christian organization existing in a certain zone. There are a lot of things they can do. There are a lot of means of persecution, which would encompass, you know, the IRS and the federal government on other levels. But, you know, my response to all of that is bring it on. If that's what the Lord has for us, then it's time for the church to be purified. Uh, I'm saying this all the time when I'm being asked this question. The church today in America is comfortable enough to be full of hypocrites and false believers. But when the persecution comes down, it comes down hard— they run away. All my years of going to Eastern Europe, all the ministry in Russia, I didn't see people pretending to be Christians. Nobody wanted to go to Siberia for being something they weren't. There was a purity in that church, and persecution does that. So maybe that's what's ahead, and that would be a good outcome. Then the church becomes more powerful and the gospel message more attractive. Frightening prospects uh, you've just given us, but At the same time, we do need a purified church, and we do need to be reminded that truth does remain. John, with all that is happening in the Middle East, we are constantly being confronted with terrorism carried out in the name of Islam. Why is it that organizations like ISIS are specifically targeting Christians now? Because it's satanic. Look, Satan would do to Christians anything he can do. He would do anything he can do. And in the Middle East... He can kill them. He has the power of death. He doesn't wield it in America. It wouldn't do any good for Satan to have an ISIS-like group in the United States going around and killing people. They'd be stopped immediately, and and they'd they'd be put in prison, and it would be over. So he's a little more blue-collar over here, maybe even white-collar, pinstripe suit. Satan works through education in America, works through movies, media, music, television, politics— And when I say education, I mean the the wretched lies that are propagated in schools and all through the universities that literally denounce God, the Bible, Christianity, the gospel. But if Satan can kill Christians, uh, those who are professing Christians anyway, he'll do that. And there are places in the world and times in the history of the world where he's been able to do that, and that's what he does. ISIS will specifically target Christians because they hate Christianity because Satan hates Christianity. He wants to bring Christian influence, Christian truth to an end. Now, admittedly, not all the people who say they're Christians in the Middle East who are being persecuted by ISIS are actually true believers. Many of them are, are Christians in the sense that they're, they're Orthodox, they're Eastern Orthodox, um, rather than Muslim. But still, the point is clear. Satan targets Christianity. Christianity is always the target of persecution. It always has been. There have been so many wars fought against true Christians, and Christianity will always be his target because Christ is the arch enemy of Satan. So we have to expect that. And as I said, in America, I don't think we have to fear that, you know, in the next couple of months, people are going to come down the street and kill us all if we 
our Christians are coming to our church and shoot us up. Although that could happen. I, I remember being in South Africa, preaching in a church in um, Cape Town, great church, marvelous church. A friend named Frank Retief was a pastor, and I preached there. And then I was gone, and, and when I was gone back here to the States, a terrorist came in with machine guns and slaughtered people sitting in church worshiping. I went back to South Africa sometime later, back into that church. Some of the people I had preached to the time before were gone. I mean, that can happen. Terrorist event can happen. But again, anything that happens to a true Christian like that just sends us into the presence of the Lord. For that, we rejoice. That's the right perspective. And what a hope that brings us as we're facing these very, very difficult challenges, both now and in the future. When you share the gospel with a Muslim, where should you start? When you share the gospel with a Muslim, I think you start where you always have to start, with sin. And here's the good news. They understand sin. I've had conversations like that with Muslims. You, you can start by saying, um, do Muslims sin? Do Muslims sin? Is there sin in Islam? They'll say, absolutely, of course. So, so what are those sins? What, what are the sins that are forbidden in Islam? And they'll undoubtedly lay out sins. And then you can say, well, what is the punishment for those sins? And they will tell you, death and hell, because there's a hell in Islam and there's a judgment in Islam. Now you've got him or her where you want them. So do you do those sins? Do you commit those sins? Yes, I do. So you're going to hell and you keep sinning. You're going to hell. Well, then they start to hedge, hoping there's some relief. I remember saying to one Muslim, how do you escape? And he said this, I hope, Allah, I hope the God will forgive me. And I said, well, on the basis of what? Is there forgiveness in Islam? Is there salvation in Islam? Is there a way to escape hell? How, how do you do that? He said, I don't know. So there's no redemption. At that point, you talk about Christ and you say, well, let me tell you, about redemption. Let me tell you about full, complete, and total forgiveness for all your sins and deliverance guaranteed from hell to eternal heaven. Would you be interested in that? And then you explain the meaning of Christ. But look, Muslims know they're sinful. Believe me, they know how wretchedly sinful they are. They know how gross they are. They know how vile their thought lives are. They know that, and they also have no hope, no hope, unless they die in a jihad, and then they're supposed to end up on green pillows with 72 virgins. That works for the men, not so good for the women. They have no hope. That's where you introduce the hope that is in Christ and Christ alone. So we start with the Muslim like we would anyone else with sin, which is really the great equalizer in that we're all sinners and we all need forgiveness. We all need a Savior. Hearing you speak about all of this, my heart and mind goes to my own kids, as I'm sure you think of your kids and your grandkids. With that in mind, my final question is this. What challenges do you see for the next generation of believers and how can we help prepare them? Yeah, in the next generation, David, I feel the great challenge facing the church is to disconnect from the culture. Think about it. 
You, you can go back. You can go back to the 1800s when the church began to connect with the culture. This would surprise people. When business techniques in the um, post-Enlightenment, post-industrialization, the world got sophisticated, people figured out how to manufacture things, how to sell things, and technique, you know, processes, assembly lines, marketing came into place. And Christians started talking about not the Bible, not prayer, and not the power of the truth, but strategies. We're talking in the 1800s. And here we are, you know, well over 100 years later, and those strategies are so sophisticated, but all this is embedded way back when. You even saw some of this. This was, this was in, the, in the fabric of the development of, of a place like the Moody Bible Institute. They were coming up with a strategy. So here we are over a century later. The strategies are more sophisticated. The church has worked really hard to connect with the world. Now the world is going to turn on the church. And the only hope the church has in the future is to make a clear disconnect, to pull back and out and get away from strategy and marketing and cleverness and accommodation back to the truth, back to prayer, back to the power of the gospel. That's the church's real power. That's the church's true message. Amen. Thank you, John. We share your love for the truth. We share your love for the church. And I know that our listeners have been blessed by all that you've said today. If you've been encouraged and strengthened by the ministry of David Parsons and Truth Remains, please remember we are 100% donor supported. So if you'd like to help this ministry continue and enable it to grow, let me encourage you to join the Truth Remains Fellowship by mailing a tax-deductible donation to Truth Remains at P.O. Box 33187, Granada Hills, California, 91394. You can also make your gift by calling toll-free at 1-888-36-TRUTH or donate online at truthremains.org. And now for David Parsons and the Truth Remains team, I'm your host, Jim Tuck, and I'd like to thank you for your support and remind you that men and philosophies come and go, but truth remains. <laughs>